Welcome to the Wolf Admin Podcast. Today I had an awesome discussion with Dr. Tom Quinn about contact lenses in general, but Dr. Quinn was a principal investigator of CRT lenses, and so our conversation naturally d- drifted to orthokeratology, myopia control, and Brian Holden, who happened to be a mentor of Dr. Quinn's. He shared some important pearls on implementation, patient conversations, and provided a clear direction on the insurance implications of fitting orthokeratology that I found was hugely helpful. Please enjoy our conversation. And as always, if you want to get the most current episodes, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review. Please enjoy. Thanks for, thanks for doing this, Tom. And um, I kind of wanted to discuss things with you. We'll start it off because I, I kind of view you as one of the gurus of, of contact lenses. And so um, so tell me a little bit about, uh, I think our listeners would want to know kind of a little bit about your practice in general, how, it's, uh, how you've kind of incorporated contact lenses, both specialty and what we might call routine contact lenses into your practice. Yeah. Well, first of all, Chris, Thanks for inviting me. I I just love to talk about contact lenses and to be invited to talk about contact lenses. It's always a treat. So thanks. So our practice is in, it's a group practice in Athens, Ohio. We have four docs and it's pretty sweet because we're in a kind of a small town. It's a college town, home of Ohio University, not Ohio State, but Ohio University. And our setup is that I do specialty contact lenses. My wife does low vision. And one of my other docs does uh, vision training. And then the fourth doc does kind of general stuff. We all do general stuff, which actually I love. I I love contact lenses, but I really enjoy managing glaucoma, helping patients through the cool cataract experience and all that piece of the puzzle too. Mm -hmm. But it's wonderful because we kind of mutually support each other. Of course, I, I know nothing about low vision because anybody that even smells like low vision, they are <laughs> off to my wife right away. You know? <laughs> Same thing with uh, vision therapy. But uh, to give you a little background, so I went to the Ohio State University College of Optometry. In my third year, this brassy Australian named Brian Holden came to do a sabbatical under Dr. Dick Hill. And you and your listeners may know the name of Brian Holden, who went on to be one of the leading corneal researchers in the world. So in my very formative time of my profession, you know, third year student trying to figure out where am I going to go from here, I'm introduced to a world class researcher. Needless to say, he influenced me. And that's where my initial interest in contact lenses came from. And then follow that with uh, my mentor, uh, Joe Barr, who went on to be the editor of Contact Lens Spectrum for many, many, many years. He was in the first class of the Corning Contact Lens Residency at Ohio State. And I went on to be in the third class of the residency. It was mm-hmm. one of the first residencies in the nation at the time. So I'm dating myself here, Chris. No, it's uh, okay. Tom, let me kind of explore that a little bit because, uh, you know, our profession is so small, but it also can feel so large to many of us. And, uh, you know, kind of the interesting stories that I get is, you know, those interactions you have with some of the giants in our profession. And um, that's, for me, that's always very interesting. So um, can we talk a little bit about Brian Holden and and, and Dr. Barr as well? Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. So, so tell me um, when you think about um, Brian Holden, 
you know, I just sort of have kind of this vague memory uh, of some of the Australian parties at Vision Source, but right. kind of tell me, you knew him before he was, you know, before we all knew him as Brian Holden. So tell me a little bit about that and kind of the, the, the things that he was doing at that time that really specifically uh, you were seeing that influenced you. Chris, we, we can talk about optometry, we can talk about studies and everything, but the bottom line is this, he was fearless. Hmm. Fearless about anything, any phase of his life. He, for example, he had never played basketball, and I, I really enjoyed basketball. I played in high school, and so a couple of my classmates and I drug him out to the basketball court, and he was fully game to play. He would stand right under the basket, which any basketball player knows is the worst place to be. You can't. You got to be off to the side a little bit to get an angle at the shot, <laughs> but. He was full game, and that's the way he approached everything yeah. in his life. And that's probably the biggest uh, lesson I got from him. What he was studying at that time was monitoring endothelial changes, the endothelial bleb response in the cornea when a contact lens was applied. Hmm. He, was, he, was, he would do like, he have three or four different arms of the study going simultaneously. Wow. <laughs> I have no idea how he could manage all that at one time. And then we were just gophers and he, we would just do what he would tell us to do. Oh, a little personal aside. <laughs> one Saturday morning, uh, we were doing some studies and there's a young woman that came in who was applying to be in optometry school who volunteered to be a research subject. Mm. Uh, so she came in, she was emetropic. We put a contact lens on her eye and she couldn't keep her eye open. <laughs> so Holden goes, yeah, Rod, get her out of here. She's, no, you know, he did his Australian thing. So, but that woman went on to be my wife of 36 oh, years. Oh, that's awesome. Susan Quinn, yeah. So that, I first met my wife doing a research study for with Brian Holden. Wow. Um, but really, uh, his enthusiasm for, for what he was doing, I mean, you, it's, it's like my son, who is a professional musician in Chicago, he went to school in Boston when the Red Sox were playing the Yankees. My son's a musician. He never had much interest in sports. He became a, a, a Boston fan because he was surrounded by such enthusiasm, you know, mm -hmm. when they were going for the pennant. Well, you could not be around Brian Holden without sucking up his enthusiasm for whatever he was into. And he was into cornea and contact lenses. And I just jumped on, on the bandwagon. Yeah. Did you, did you have, do you have any re recollection of that time? I mean, what you're talking about in terms of fearlessness, you know, myopia at that point was never thought of probably too, too um, significantly, at least in the literature uh, of, as being something that we can control. But I know that some of the myopia control stuff has been around, even with RGPs for a long time. Was he, um, was he involved at that point? Was he intrigued at that point? Uh, because it's certainly you can't think of myopia control without thinking of Brian Holden. Um, right. So do you remember any of that? Oh, yeah. That's a great question. And you know, no, this was not on his radar. It was so far into the future. What we were concerned about was, can someone wear a contact lens in a healthy way? It was all about corneal oxygen at that time was the huge thing. We've largely conquered that oxygen issue 
because of the work that was done at, back at this time by Brian Holden and by Richard Hill and, and, and um, Pulse and Mandel and all the folks out of Berkeley. But yeah, th at the time here, it was, the, it was a time of corneal health and, and corneal oxygen demands and needs. That's what the big issue was. And prior to that, Brian really, his first interest was astigmatism correction with contact lenses, toric soft lens designs. That was his, his first love and passion. So yeah, corneal uh, myopia control. No, that was way off in the future. And, but boy, that is something that's so exciting right now, and that, that's something I hope we get a chance to talk. Yeah, about. well, let's talk about it. I, you know, so so when you think about how you're um, integrating what you do in practice into myopia control, uh, obviously with specialty lenses, what's your approach? Well, let me f first say that when when you were kind enough to invite me to speak, I said I'm going to make a little list of things that I want to make sure we talk about. First thing I wrote down was myopia control because it's something that it's so it has so much potential. I mean, for so many years, all we did, people would come in every year, young kids would come in, and we just bump up the power. Our job was just to keep them seeing clearly, and to be able to manipulate that and control it, and and provide a better quality of life for a young person is just it's really exciting, and I really hope. The profession jumps on the bandwagon. I'm going to try to be the Brian Holden here and get everybody excited <laughs> about the notion that fearlessly go forward, embrace myopia control. Uh, I will share share with you, Chris. That, so I serve on the advisory committee for Vision Expo, and uh, we were talking about what course uh, contents to offer at Vision Expo uh, this year, which is coming up next month in, in New York, by the way, in March. Um, and I, you know, said myopia control. And I, I felt a resistance that, that they wanted to embrace myopia control, but they felt like well, it was more than just contact lenses. Mm -hmm. Well, it is. It is. Um, glasses, well, we're trying to figure that out. There are some pharmaceutical agents, but come on, yep. a big piece of the pie is contact lenses, you know, orthokeratology or, um, multi-zone contact lenses. So we were fortunate enough to actually be an FDA site huh. for orthokeratology, the CRT lens with, uh, with Paragon. We were an investigational site. So we got into orthokeratology early before we knew it had myopia control benefits. Well, with that, at that point, just a second, yeah. Tom, let me, let, me, let me ask you a question that kind of follows up with that. In my experience in patients with when we're using orthokeratology, um, it actually does a way better job than what a lot of the studies show us it would do for, for myopia control, right? Like, like, you know, the studies would estimate about 50%, maybe a little bit higher than that. Some of the big studies that right. we've seen, but, um, but in my experience, you know, it pretty much halts, uh, halts myopia progression. So how do you square have, first? Have you noticed that in your practice? And second, how do you square what I may be seeing and you may be seeing in your practice um, with why the evidence doesn't say the same thing. Chris, I am with you. I've had better than 50% success with myopia control. And yeah, close to, I don't want to say 100%, but yeah. very, very high success. I think it may be related to the designs that we've been using. Again, weren't originally uh, meant to be for myopia control, like the original CRT design. They all had a fixed 
optic zone. Mm -hmm. Kids don't have fixed pupil sizes. Are you? We need to make. Are you adjusting it based on pupil size, or are you specifically just going with a smaller optic zone based on that study that came out, I think, last year that discussed having a more narrow optic zone uh, for myopia control? Well, I, I I need to embrace that approach more, Chris. But I'm just reflecting on why sure. do the studies say fifty percent? I think the reason is because we we if we do manipulate that optic zone so it's small enough to get light into the pupil that falls outside the optic zone because that's where the magic is, right? That's where that hyperopic, yep, uh, defocus, that myopic defocus is created. Um, so if We've been wearing devices where the optic zone or the treatment zone is larger than the pupil, then we're not getting that magic peripheral light in. So I think that's why it's 50-50. Once we start nuancing it and doing what you suggest, controlling that central zone size so we do have peripheral light getting uh, light outside the optic zone getting into the pupil, then we're going to see the results that you and I have seen clinically. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. So let me... uh... Let me follow up with that to say, when you're having conversations with patients and parents about uh, about myopia control, I've noticed that when I bring it up to my my patients in in our community, there's not yeah. a lot of discussion going on about it. Certainly, there's not a ton of discussion in the eye care community in the kind of the rank and file practice or practice you know practitioners that are in the trenches seeing patients. I think yeah. there's a huge dearth of them that are actually doing it. I'm not disparaging anybody. I'm just saying that that's been my experience. And so the 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 fact that I'm the only one discussing it, and then there's some websites and some other resources we can send patients to. But what if, yeah. kind of give me that conversation? Tell you know I'm the patient. I've never heard about it before, and you see me. You know, let's say you see my kid, and they've increased by half a diopter in a year. What does that conversation yeah. sound like? from you from your end and i'm yeah i'm in the same i'm had the same experience chris that no one really knows much about this with the possible exception of some of those in the asian community because there is a huge as we know epidemic of myopia in the asian population so i'm in a again in a university town and we do have some elements of the asian population and oftentimes they are aware of it and they embrace it right away but for mo- the, most people that we see, it is a new concept, a new idea. And we have, first of all, that conversation, which Mark Greit calls the golden moment, mm. where at the end of the exam, you pull the slit lamp away, <laughs> you put your electronic health record to the side, you face the patient, in this case, the patient and the parent, and you, say, and you share the golden nugget of what you want to really impress them with. And that is, you know what, your child here has been progressing more in nearsightedness. For many years, all we would do is strengthen the glasses. But we've understood that later in life, that becomes more of a challenge with the patient, for the patient as they get more nearsighted. They can't get up at night and go to the bathroom, you know, without putting their glasses on. Plus, there are health implications uh, as they get more nearsighted. Now we can do something about it pause, let that soak in. Mm. And then, then we proceed to explain what some of those things are. And one of them is this uh, orthokeratology. And we have a, then a handout, Chris, that we give them. And honestly, oftentimes we have that conversation 
and the kids just get their glasses updated. It's the next time yes. that they come in. Absolutely. They commonly now they've had a chance to think about the parents have had a chance to think about it. The kids a little more mature, so maybe they have a little bit more confidence in the in the child's ability to to do undertake this. And that that's when it gets embraced. Yeah, that's been my experience as well. Is that it's multiple conversations over one or two or three years where the the you know the uh, the parents are finally seeing that this isn't going to just stop, and they are seeing yeah. that that uh, you know that it, it is something that isn't just that we can do other things about it, and they'll have researched it, and a lot of times they're bringing it up in the second year. But I think that's really helpful. I um, I know there's not a magic bullet when you're having the dis- these discussions. I think the key is consistency, and so if we're busy in our practices and we're not being able to spend the time with our patients because we either haven't delegated appropriately or we're seeing too many patients at once that's yeah. where that's where it's going to be challenging um but but to me this is something that um you know i'm all i'm always about things that can be done in our practices that can't be done anyplace else or can't be done yeah. as well as we can do them and in certain do you utilize the handout chris for, uh, yeah yeah we do and in fact yeah. i wanted to kind of um follow up with that i mean the first handout that we that we utilize is, um, you know, is a very simple, straightforward one pager. But then there's, you know, in orthokeratology in general, patients have all these frequently asked questions, and we provide that as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, I also believe, you know, I never like to have co- like price discussions in my exam room. If we have to, I will have them. You know, if the patient asks yeah. me directly, I don't want to hesitate. Yeah. But, um, but we also provide them, uh, you know, a cost structure for that as well on their way out so that they understand, you know, that there is a different fee. And, and I'd like to talk to you about that as well. But, um, but I think, you know, in, in a day and age when there's a perception that things can be done uh, without a doctor more and more, without guidance yeah. of a doctor, uh, this is absolutely something that, that isn't, you know, isn't being done. And it's a service that uh, without, obviously without the guidance of a doctor. And it's a service that yeah. allows us to, continue to grow our practices, not just save on cost of goods, which is very important, but really grow our practices. Uh, and that's what we've seen as well. And as you said, Chris, it's, it's exciting. Yeah. Not only are we, do we have to do it, but it, it takes an engaged mind to do it. So if we're just fitting spherical disposable contact lenses every day, I'm sorry, you know, I'm providing a service, but that doesn't excite me. Yep. Um, this kind of stuff excites me. We're changing people's lives when we do this. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you find that, um, that, well, one, I think there's a perception, like in your mind, when, how many fits does it take in general when you're working with people? Um, fits does it take a provider to get comfortable with this? And then, um, and then two, once you get comfortable, um, you know, are there multiple designs that I need to think about? Are there, is there one design you'd say, okay, this is what I would get right away. This is the first one. I mean, I, I want our listeners to kind of have wrap their minds around if they're going to incorporate this into their practice, what is a reasonable time frame to, to try to approach this where you're starting to feel comfortable? Um, yeah, yeah, go ahead. So there are a lot of different designs out there. I would encourage your listeners to grab on to one of those designs and learn its nuances and get really comfortable with it. What, which design you choose, actually studies have shown they all work pretty well. So maybe it's a relationship you have with a certain manufacturer. Maybe it's 
some but somebody that you have that is is getting into this and you talk to them and they say i work with this so then you embrace that whatever uh route takes you to a given design choose one and then really learn the nuances of it also i encourage uh, listeners to really feel free to call their lab consultants this this goes a bit broader than just myopic control, Chris. Lab consultants are there to help us. They want to help us. And I've, I think there's a tendency, a resistance among our colleagues to take advantage of uh, consultants. Maybe, maybe we feel like, oh, I should know this. You know, yeah. scleral lenses has really pushed me to, I loved working with scleral lenses. And, but boy, the consultants helped me so much. They know their design so intimately. And, I say, you know, I like this part. I don't like that. And they go, oh, well, we just make this modification. Yeah, I mean, you know, they, they're so nuanced about it. It's great. Do you, do you agree oh, with that? Oh, totally. I think I, I can't remember who who told me that. I don't know if it was my dad. I don't know if I heard you say it before. But, uh, you know, I think probably the best advice anybody gave me was just use the consultants for whatever those, for whatever those, uh, you know, those lenses are. And, you know, I, I'm, I always like to try to, to understand what I'm going to do and then I'll bounce yeah. it off the consultant and it's like, yeah, it makes sense or no, let's do this instead. And, um, yeah, I agree. I think that's, that's a hugely underutilized, uh, resource. Yeah. I, I like your comment there that you have an idea what you want to do, you know, and then bounce that off of them. One, first of all, make sure they agree with you. But secondly, then how do we achieve that? And they, they will know the nuances of yeah, that. Absolutely. But getting back to your question, so how do we really get started with myopia control, particularly orthokeratology? I would also recommend you start with some low-hanging fruits. That is someone who's under four doctors of myopia with very little astigmatism, someone with a you know relatively normal corneal shape. If they're really steep or really flat, that might be harder. But if they're in the normal, you know, uh, a range of corneal uh, curvature, start something like something uh, with with the average healthy eye. And then get a, I, Ed Bennett always talks about the rule of three. If you get three under your belt, then you're really starting to get a sense for uh, how to do something. In the case of myopia control, I, I think at least do five and then, then reassess yourself and say, is this a design that works for me? And, my, do I need to nuance my approach in any way? But I think three to five fits under your belt with, again, someone in that sweet spot mm -hmm. of, of refractive error is a good way yeah, to start. Yeah, five is kind of the number I always think about too. Um, yeah. Is there, so is there, like, let's say I want to get started. Is there a resource that kind of gives me a, um, that you feel, feel like is really a good resource that gives me some of these tools right away? Is it the manufacturers that, that they have some of those resources? What, what's been your experience? Yeah. Yeah. So, so again, I, I, I'm not a no, no, consultant yeah. That's for Paragon, Paragon, but CRT is where I started because I was involved in that FDA study. So that's what I've really worked a lot with. So, but Paragon has some great resources. Um, GPLI info which is the gas permeable lens institute's educational website and it's a little tricky chris because it's not dot com it's not dot edu it's dot info g g p l i dot info it's got all kinds of great resources where they have case reports and as well as information on the different designs so that's a real go-to awesome 
Awesome. So then how, so let me ask you then, Tom, in terms of like um, structure, like fee structure and how, how did you assess whether or not it's worth your time and how do you make it worth your time? You know, um, and then I kind of want to parlay that into, you know, a soft, soft multifocal or even, you know, some pharmaceutical technologies and how you're monitoring those patients. And so, you know, kind of give, give me a sense of how do you, how do you make sure that this is worth your time? Yeah, that uh, it's always an issue, yeah, isn't it? It is. It is. <laughs> how, do, how do we keep our doors open? Uh, basically, how do we survive as a business? And that's one of the reasons I joined Vision Source ten years ago. And boy, has it been helpful. So that's a whole other topic. <laughs> but that, yeah, how, how do we manage the business side? And to give you perspective, when uh, we first started doing uh, orthokeratology. At that time, again, myopia control wasn't really in the picture. We did it as an alternative to LASIK. Mm -hmm. So how can people go through their day without correction? They could do LASIK or they could wear this device at night that changes the shape of their eye. Then they get up in the morning and they take the device out and the shape of the eye is appropriate for them to be able to see and be active through their day. So that was the mindset. So I set the pricing at that time to be the half the cost of LASIK. Mm-hmm. So I know we probably shouldn't get into specifics, but we're talking over $1,000 to do the fitting. So that's kind of where we came from. And uh, that established uh, a fee structure that made it worth mm-hmm. our time. Also, in our initial handout that we give people that talks about this concept, that again, that handout's really important since it's such a new concept, we also lay out the fees. So we say right up front, this is how much it costs for the service. This is how much it costs for the mm-hmm. devices. We don't yeah. call them contact. That's a mistake system. I think we, we make them- too, though, is I think we make it, we call yeah. it a lens. Yeah. Yeah, we call them devices because it distinguishes how these aren't just being put on the surface of your eye and and correcting your vision. They're being put on the surface of your eye and manipulating the right. surface of your eye. It, it helps distinguish them, and especially when you get into insurances that say ah. they will pay for contact mm. lenses. And if you're doing contact lenses, you can only charge $60 for a contact lens fit. It helps us stay away from all that. That is great of, insight. Uh, Have you ever met Cheryl Chapman? She practices in Gretna, uh, Nebraska, and she's I, I don't she's know um, she's gotten very big into orthokeratology. And she and I have had these discussions before on uh, even within our own Vision Source group about how do you do that. And I, I mean, I love your your response of of it isn't a contact lens, and so we're not doing a contact lens fitting. Yeah. Uh, that, that's actually going right. to be hugely helpful because we've, we've gone around and around, um, even, uh, well, you probably know Ellen Weiss, don't you from, yeah. So, um, yeah. And, and Ellen's been in on that conversation as well. And so, uh, yeah, that's very helpful is, is you're, you're fitting a device that manipulates the surface of the eye intentionally as opposed to fitting a contact lens. And I, I like that idea right. of how that impacts insurance. Well, thank you. The, the other piece of the puzzle is some, although you and I were talking about the high success rate we have with this, sometimes things don't work out. So we spell that out in that handout very clearly too. And we came up with uh, a cost per visit. So 
if we say, you know, we've gotten into this and we were three visits in and we just don't think, you know, the child, for example, says, I don't want to do this or the outcome isn't what we were expecting. We have up front told them, okay, well, we've still invested this amount of time and energy into this process. So we're going to keep this amount of money and you get this amount back if any. So that's all mm-hmm. spelled out. And I think it's really important to do that up front. Tom, do you, so then I want to kind of, and we can, you might have other insight that you want to share on this, but, but I want to kind of transition our myopia control conversation into some of the soft multifocal design. So let's say you have a patient that um, just doesn't want to have orthokeratology or, or doesn't, you know, fails with it or is too high of a myope to really uh, fully correct it. So how first are you implementing like a multifocal um, soft lens or a, so, so, yeah, we'll, we'll go ahead. Yeah. So, so before I get to that, yeah, let yeah, me, yeah. So you mentioned too high of a myope. Also too low of a uh, myope, in my opinion, is maybe not a good candidate. And the reason is that if they're too low of a myope, the amount of corneal change you're making is so slight that perhaps we're not introducing enough peripheral myopic defocus to make a difference in slowing myopic That's a good point. You yeah. So what, what, then what's kind of your lower limit that you'd think of in terms of myopia control with orthokeratology? Oh, that's a great <laughs> question, Chris. And we need more science to help us really answer that. But around 150, okay. you know, I, I, if they're a really great candidate, they're really excited, I might do it. But below that, I'm thinking a soft myopia yeah. right. is better because it's going to be able to introduce more plus and super periphery. helpful. So, yeah, good. Thank you. And so now let's talk about soft multifocals. And of course, that's what we're working with now are multifocals, whereas they're working with designs specifically for myopia control that it's just not available to us yet. So everything we're doing with the soft multifocals off label. Yep. But having said that, it, it is showing great promise. And I feel really strongly that for children, a daily disposable mm-hmm option is the best way to go and of course if we're going to do myopia control it's got to be a center distance design multifocal and there's only one yep. of those out yep. there right now so uh i don't know if you want to mention the well brand i mean i think we this. can i you know i i again w- with this i'm you know I, I don't get paid by anybody to do this uh maybe we can reach out to okay. natural view and see if they want to sponsor this spot <laughs> but yeah, yeah. that's it so, Visionary technology is an outdoor view lens, and I've just had really good success with that. Having said that, there are other, you know, monthly options with center distance design, for example, Cooper Visions uh, lenses, but uh, it's got to be center distance. And I found that some of our colleagues don't understand that, so I wanted to make sure that point was clear. But just daily disposables, Chris, I mean, from the convenience standpoint, and I mean, if we weren't talking myopia control for Kids wouldn't be recommending that. Absolutely. uh, Safest. Robin Chalmers did a study that showed that if you change your lenses every day, you're 12 and a half times less likely to have ocular inflammation. Mm. And with kids, it's got to be even higher. I I remember doing an extended wear study, and this has been a number of years ago, back when the night and day was being developed. And looking back at the complications from the study, being an adolescent male was considered a risk yes. factor. Yeah, so probably no one out there that's been an adolescent male or raised an adolescent male <laughs> or has been around one 
it's surprised yeah. by that, but yeah. So particularly adolescent males. Do you think, Tom? This is a, a kind of an aside, but you know, I, I'm right there with you. One of the things that that I, I have been curious about for the last just just wondering for the last five to ten years is. You know, as we move the modality to a a frequent replacement lens, like a daily disposable lens, um, I I absolutely agree in terms of health of of patients. But do you think that that has um, also led to the commoditization of the perception that it's just so repeatable and so reproducible that it is like a, I mean, forgive if I say it, but it is like a tampon or a piece of toilet paper? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Okay, I've not heard that uh, analogy before, Chris. So you're expanding my thinking. <laughs> yes, okay. Um, yeah, you know, I can see where you would say that, but honestly, that commoditization thing was happening okay. before daily disposable lens were really embraced. We're always going to have challenges in the optometric market and the contact lens arena. You know, the internet you know, has been around forever. But when it first started selling contact lenses, we, we were afraid that that was going to replace mm-hmm. uh, us as suppliers. And it just hasn't because we're staying diligent. We're keeping the patient's best interest in mind and we're being cost competitive. So I'm not too worried about that because it, it's just been something that's always there. And we need to pay attention yep. to it. Don't get me wrong. We need to support our organizations like the AOA and, the, and their state organizations that monitor what companies are doing and trying to grab patients and pretend that these aren't healthcare yeah. devices yeah. and are commodities. So we got to pay attention and support those organizations and actively get involved with those organizations. And as long as we're doing that, and then again, always keeping our yes. patients as the ultimate, that's the bottom line providing care, quality care, then we're going to be okay. Well, I think that's the the key point as well is that overarching, even if it did commoditize things a little bit more, uh, I think the overarching thing that you and I can agree on for sure is that it is in the best interest of the patient. And so then then let's bring it back then um, to... uh, So now we've got a a soft multifocal center distance. um, And are you... Are, how are you in your in your pr- practice pricing that in relation to like a like a orthokeratology fit for myopia control? Yeah, Chris, that's a great <laughs> question, and I'll tell you, I'd like to know what you're doing on that because we've struggled with that um, because it, we're we're not charging nearly as much as we do for orthokeratology, but we're charging more than what we charge to fit you know single vision lens. It's close to what we charge. For fitting a, a multifocal lens on a presbyo, yeah, that's kind of what my that's kind of where I've landed as well. Is you know I I've I've gone back and forth and and um, again, uh, Dr. Chapman, Dr. Cheryl Chapman, and I have had these conversations. And if you you don't know who she is, you will know soon. She's a she's a star in our profession. But um, anyway, the uh, the you know I think on the one hand you could legitimately say. It doesn't really matter if if I'm if I'm doing any of these fits. If you're really going to monitor those patients, um, you know, quote unquote aggressively, where you're going to watch them, you know, every three months or something to see if there's been any changes. I I for right. me in my practice, I just haven't felt the need to do that. You know, I, I feel like it's been pretty stable, and you know, monitoring six to twelve months seems to be appropriate for those patients that are relatively stable. So 
I yeah, agree. so I um, so I'm with you. I I've kind of settled on you, you know this idea that it is a, a it does require me for less monitoring, and so the fee is is less, and my chair time is less. Um, that's a great point. Yeah, so it kind of all lines up when you think yeah, about that. Exactly, way. and so so and it gives an option to patients that decide you know I don't want to pay a premium price for an an overnight lens, but they can still have multi you know yeah. they can still have the option of myopia control. So yeah. And Chris, I, I, I think it's really important that we as the provider help guide the patient in making that choice. Yeah, money's one factor, but there's all these other things too. Like we talked about refractive error can be something, patient disposition, all, a whole host of things that can play into this. I feel really strongly that we should recommend one of the options <laughs> to the patient that we think is best because we're the experts. And I, I really feel like we're making a mistake when we say, look, you could do yeah. this or you could do this or you could do that. Why, why are we leaving it to the patient to make the decision? Let's look at the patient, their needs, the tools available, and let's be the matchmaker. But don't you think, Tom, that, that in general this might happen with orthokeratology because, uh, or with myopia control because that's – very similar to how a lot of us were trained or a lot of us will also practice like the Coke Pepsi challenge, right? You're not the doctor yeah. anymore. You just let the patient decide. And I, and you know, my dad is, is from day one. I can even remember in school, one of my, my mentors, uh, asked me to do the Coke Pepsi challenge. And then my dad was in my ear, you know, like subconsciously <laughs> I hear him talking about like, be the doctor, Chris, be the doctor, Chris, be the doctor, you know? Yeah. And and so I, I kind of pushed back a little bit on. It. I said, well, you know, I, I kind of was uncomfortable with that recommendation, and um, for, from the from the checkout that I had or the the preceptor I had, and um, and I said, I said, you know, he he recognized that he he's awesome, by the way, but he recognized that, yeah. and he said, he said, well, you know, you why do you feel like that? And I said, well, I feel like I should be the doctor. You know, I should know which one is best for this patient, and um, yeah. and you know, but I think do you? I guess the, the reason I'm pointing that out is. Um, what's your thought about that? And second, I think that sort of translates into what you're recommending with, uh, with myopia control modalities as well. Do you yeah. see a lot of well, people well, doing well, that? Doing what? Coke Pepsi challenge. Yeah. 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 So, so first of all, let me say your dad is awesome. <laughs> no, yeah. no wonder you've turned out to be the fine man that you are Thank you. because you is just an inspiration to me. I met him early on uh, at the gym. <laughs> That's true. We're going to vision source meeting, uh, he and Mark Betancourt yeah. would be doing oh. the gym, and I, oh yeah, I miss Mark. I miss Mark. But anyway, God rest his soul. So anyway, you come from good stock. So yeah, yeah thanks. So getting back to the Pepsi Challenge thing, yeah, I, let me tell you a story that uh, my wife and I, who are, we're both optometrists, and we're both control freaks. And uh, <laughs> so we were going to remodel the back deck on our, on our house. And my wife, who's a, quite a gardener, wanted to have a pergola, which I didn't know what a pergola was prior to this, Chris. It's a <laughs> that, that flowers and things can grow on, you know. She wanted to construct a, a pergola on the back deck. And we said to the builder, we want this pergola. We want it right here. We want it this size. So him being the builder, it's his job to build what we want, right? Right, right. No, it's not. It's his job being the expert to say, well, if you build the pergola there, 
you're going to block the view of the southern sky when you're in your hot tub on a winter evening. And you don't want to do that. So <laughs> let me recommend that you do this. Yes. So he was the expert and he wisely <laughs> guided us in another direction. So in the, we are the contact lens builders. We're the ones who are the experts in contact uh -huh. lenses. So it's really important that we can hear what the patient has to say, but we should be the final, make the final call. And then if they come back and say, well, that's too expensive, or I don't like this, or that, then you have that conversation. But start with a firm recommendation. I feel really, really passionate about that. Yeah, I think that's great. Well, then, then if we're gonna if we're gonna talk about the firm recommendation, I think I have a sense of when you're using uh, a multifocal soft lens. But what about atropine? Are you using that much? Are you having that in the conversation? And if so, where are you positioning that? Chris, I am not, and I'll tell you why. Well, first of all, yeah. it's it's a hassle to get you know the right concentration because you got to have it specially made. But also, I, I'm really torn about the results because as far as I know, there's one, one study that showed that this low concentration of atropine makes a difference. And that same mm -hmm. study that showed that there was uh, myopia control, there was not control of axial length mm. in that same study. So hmm. how could That's axial length not be impacted when that's really the driver for the myopia. So I guess I'm skeptical of yeah. the results until I see another study done that really convinces me. So it probably works. So for all those of you out there going, oh, I've been doing it, doing it successfully. Great. Yep. But I, that's, that's why I've not embraced it. How about you? Yeah, you know, um, we have done some. Uh, mainly where, where we're using it will be in patients that have no desire to wear a contact lens, honestly, or they have, yeah. you know, a significant amount of astigmatism that precludes, you know, decent vision from, a, from a, yeah. you know, the, the multifocal optics that we have or the orthokeratology that, you know, while it's better than it was 10 years ago, is still a challenge on significant corneal sill. That's a great uh, I don't know about Yeah. Yeah. So the other tip that I would I would reach out to you, we're having um, at our one of our upcoming um, Vision Source Zoom meetings, um, we're having Impermis um, kind of talk about compounded pharmaceuticals within primary care practice, oh. and Impermis actually mass compounds um, low dose atropine that's preservative free in a a, a multi-dose bottle. Oh. So, um, so we've been doing the same thing. Like, okay, well, we're going to send them to this one pharmacy that's relatively close and, um, and have them kind of do that. But I'll tell you more and more, we're, we're using Impermis for things like patients that have, um, copays that are too high for restasis. They've got a, it's called Clarity C, which is a 0.1% cyclosporin or maybe a 1% cyclosporin off the top of my head. I can't remember. Okay. But basically, it's it's two times, it's two and a half times, two and a quarter times the concentration of restasis, um, and and that is forty bucks a month, forty wow. or fifty bucks a month is all. How do you, yeah, how do you it's, I mean, it's amazing. Chris, how do you spell that? I I M P R I S I I M P R I M I S R X dot com. That'll take you to their website. But but they've got you know. Um, a whole slew of, you know, preservative-free pred. Ah. I mean, 40 bucks. Wow. 
they, they've they've got you know for your glaucoma patients that are on three medications, they compound one preservative free with latanoprost and um, timolol and dorsolamide and bromonidine. You can get a four you know a four medication one bottle um, uh, preservative free medication wow. that they sort of mass produce slash yeah. compound. But it's a really cool concept, and all they really do is eye care. Chris, that, um, that is worth the price of admission right there. Buddy. <laughs> I think so. I think so. Yeah, so. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. So anyway, that would be another option if you ever wanted wanted to do it. But um, but you know, one of the questions I have with uh, that I that I don't know we know the answer to yet, and I I hope that the case is that with lower dose atropine we get less rebound effect. But certainly when you looked at um, at the initial atropine uh, atom one, they had quite a, a striking rebound effect after stopping atropine. Uh, I think I think they had this progression that that didn't get them quite to where they would have been, but you know that that number of eighty percent reduction in myopia, um, you know, after I think one or two years of Adam one, on the back end after stopping and watching them for a year or two, they they caught up not all the way. It was still about a diopter difference. I think it, in my mind, I'm thinking about four and a quarter to like a five. Yeah, the difference between the treated and untreated groups, but um, but it was you know it wasn't nearly as successful um after they stopped it. So. Uh, that'll be interesting to see if we have any other data that comes out with atropine as well. Yeah, Chris, you know, we science kind of guys and gals tend to, <laughs> uh, you know, love numbers and love those kind of statistics. And I'm with you. I do too. But I've come to appreciate that science doesn't really give us answers. It just kind of leads us in a direction. Yeah. You have to mm-hmm. have repeated studies, repeated results. And it's kind of like herd and catch, you know, slowly things start to get pointed in a certain direction you go i think that's the direction we want to go but in this early going it's always like oh that's interesting but i always want to just hold back and say i'm not sure having said that yeah i I, I like i don't want to hold back and wait for a soft multifocal to be approved for my op control i because we i feel like there's enough evidence to say this works do it and uh just let patients know it's it's off label What's your what's your experience with um, you know I, we keep seeing these headlines that Coopervision is going to have one relatively soon. Yeah. Do you have any insight on that? Have you have you been able to work with them or I, I, or do anything with that? I, I do have an opportunity to work with Coopervision, but not with this lens. I think you're talking about the MySight lens. And yes. Yep. I've not had personal uh, experience with it, but boy, the 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 studies are looking great. I think Paul Chamberlain yeah. has published some stuff that looks impressive, and I think. As we get a lens specifically designed for myopic control, results are just going to improve. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, so okay, then let's. Um, unless you have any other kind of thoughts about myopia control, I'd like to kind of take this to a, um, kind of a, a similar uh, direction. But you know, one of the things that I've um, I've experienced is. Uh, in general, um, you know, there's this idea of like contact lens dropout where if you look at it, and I, I can, I, I've talked to a lot of people about this, especially in my dry, dry discussions. But, yeah. you know, when I think about a contact lens company, I remember when I was in school, them showing me charts of new wearers uh, with basically the same number of new wearers starting every year as the same number of dropouts every year. So it's basically been flat since I can remember. And yet yeah. we've got this advent of, of, you know, quote unquote, better lenses, which I have no, um, I have no 
uh, thought that they're not better lenses. But in my mind, I, I put it all through the prism of the fact that the reason that we have these continued dropout is not because the lens materials aren't good. It's because you know the device uses that we're doing and just ocular surface dysfunction in general has become rampant. Right. And so while we're getting better materials, our, the ocular surface isn't as good. So that's kind of the approach that I've always taken is I always take the disease first. Uh, and, you know, I'm having a lot of conversations with my patients that, you know, is different than a lot of other doctors that have had with their conversation patients in saying, it's not your contact lenses that are uncomfortable. You know, they're in, they come in with a daily lens or whatever. It's not their contact lenses that are the problem. It's their tear right. film. But whether or not that's, I believe that to be true. And, and I'm not asking you to agree with me or disagree with me. What I really want to know is what are your thoughts about the nuances of new, of new contact lens materials that I may be missing? that you're seeing um, that may not just be the case that, that they have ocular surface disease, but they may have ocular surface disease, but also these materials are, are this is what is inherent about that material. In, and you could be specific or you don't have, you could be general that makes those perform better in today's scenarios. So Chris, uh, let me say, I agree with you, but I'd like to offer a friendly amendment. Yeah, that's what I'm looking yeah, for. Great. So, the first of all, I fully agree that the ocular service health is paramount in success with a contact lens wear. And you know, been doing I've been doing this for a while, and it used to be, oh, you're not comfortable. Let's switch you to this lens. Oh, that's not good. Yep. Let's switch you to this. And it was kind of like throwing darts, you know, and hoping to hit something. Yep. And now we've learned how important the ocular surface is. And it's, I think it's more of an issue now than when I started practice because of all the, the digital screen we're observing that people do and that and they, don't, they don't blink. And we also have come to appreciate how important the, uh, the myobomine glands and the eyelid health is to the mm -hmm. ocular surface. So, yeah, that's where we got to start by looking at the ocular surface and treating that first. If you don't have a good neighborhood for that contact lens to live in, it's not going to thrive. So we have to create a nice environment. But the other piece of the puzzle, so that being said, we can talk more about that. I feel like that's a conversation that's commonly held now, which is great. And now we need as a profession to embrace it and really practice that way and change, change the surface before we start the contact lens experience. But the other piece is if you look at those graphs that you talked about with dropout, Mm -hmm. Where does the big dropout take place? There's a certain point on that graph where it yeah. really starts to drop off. Do you know where? Presbyo. Yeah. Why is that? So, obviously, as time goes on, dry eye becomes more of a significant factor. But it's more than that, Chris. And, again, we can talk about dry eye and management and all that. But putting that aside, it's also because our challenges with fitting presbyopic contact lenses. There's a third piece of the puzzle, and that is that I think that when patients, and this has been my experience, when patients get to the presbyopic age, they've captured their mate. Mm. They've kind of, you know, their motivation for contact lens wear sometimes drops off. So I think it's three things, dry eye, challenges for delivering the vision, and thirdly, just motivation. So let's talk about the delivering the vision. I think part of the issue there, Chris, is defining what success is with a multifocal contact lens. Some docs say, well, if they don't deliver like glasses in terms of acuity, then they're not successful. 
where patients, I believe, would disagree with, with them on that. Uh, so uh, a classic example is I had a colleague saying, you know what, my focal contacts don't work. I have patients go into restaurants and they can't read the menu. Well, yeah, it's dim light. We know that. All these studies uh, that show head-to-head -head multifocals versus mo monovision, multifocals do better, except in low-light situations. Mm -hmm. So let's take that information. It's no surprise to us. Let's share that little tidbit with the patient. Say, you know what? These look great. Now I want you to know when you're, you're in that romantic evening with your spouse and dim light, it's going to be hard to read the menu. But you know what? Everybody carries a, a, a light yep. with them now. So I just, I have, I wear multifocal contact lenses. I just know that I got to pull my light out to pay the bill. Yep. So arm them with the tool to manage that situation. The other scenario is that people think about acuity all the time. Doc, by people, I mean docs, yep. optometrists. If uh, Jill Woods did this great study that showed with monovision, acuity was better, but with multifocals, patients said, I can do what I need to be able to do every day better. Mm. Which is more important? <laughs> Patient being able to do what they need to do every day, right? Yeah. So understanding that, I think it will give you a positive predisposition towards pursuing multifocal correction. Science backs us up that that's the yeah. best way to go. And then just learn the nuances. And I get a chance to uh, go around the schools with the staple program, which has all the big four contact lens companies, multifocal lenses that we work with through the workshop. And virtually they all work on everybody. Now, not absolutely, but success can be really, really good with the proper expectation. Mm. That third piece of the puzzle, or that yeah, third piece of the puzzle that I was telling you about, Chris, where I think the interest in multifocal contact lenses can drop off through the presbyopic years. It's not an absolute glasses or contact lenses. I think we can really embrace a lot more presbyopic fits if we approach them as complex people that have multiple visual tasks. Sometimes glasses are better. Sometimes contact lenses are better. Yeah. So in other words part-time wear yeah. and I, I have this article that I was just reading yesterday in contact lens spectrum the December issue that talks about part-time wear statistics you want to guess what percentage of part-time contact lens wears there are in the US percentage yeah just for mm. fun um 40 percent in the US eight percent <laughs> that's it Eight, that's it. Wow. Australia, 29%. Uh, Czech Republic, 30%. Finland, 34%. 8% in the U.S. I think that's a really missed opportunity. Yeah. I yeah, agree. Yeah. I mean, I got presbyopsy. Okay. Yeah. For work and stuff, they don't need glasses. But when then after work, when they go to the gym or they go out to ride their bike or something now, or social events, obviously, uh, Contact lenses can have a place. It just doesn't have to be all or nothing. And we in the U.S. tend to think of it that way. Yeah. Contact lens wears, there's spectacle wears. Where, like in the Nordic countries, there, and I think some of those are reflected here, they're much better at saying, you know what? You're a complicated person with a lot of needs. Let's do what meets your need at this moment. And do, you think that's a, do you think that's because of a practitioner's perspective or do you think it's the patient's perspective that maybe we've even fed into that you're either or? Yeah, I think, I think it comes from us actually. Yeah. <laughs> we kind of, 
I think, okay, we can't meet this real detailed need, but we can meet all this need, but we just yeah. see that one we can't meet. So we, we focus on the thing that. we can't do. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think that's helpful too to, to um, you know, kind of, uh, so let, let me ask you this then, um, probably one of the last questions because I want to be respectful of your time, but we can always do this again and, and kind of do another follow-up. I'd love to. I'm having to. a blast. I know, me too. I, I could do this all day long. Um, but the, so what does the conversation, you know, I'm a 50-year-old um, female. Uh, I'm a, let's say I'm a, a one doctor myope. And I just want to have kind of lenses. Um, I've never worn them before. What's your conversation sound like? And I'm not necessarily even asking you for them. Yeah. What's that conversation sound like? In fact, Chris, you're probably not asking me for them. Yeah. Yeah. So we have to, Hmm. this is where we're, we're the driver. We know the patient, we know the tools, and then we have to be the one to come up with this. You know what? I understand. We have to understand what the patient does, you know, how they use their eyes through the day. I'll tell you, one thing that really helps drive this for me is a staff, good staff. If I have, I have this one technician, I mean, they're all great. I have such a great team and I mm-hmm. rely on them. I delegate to them and delegation is really important. That gives them ownership and satisfaction and job performance and everything. But there's one staff member in particular that when she takes this, the patient back, she, you know, is just kind of talking, so how you doing? What you up to? She will say, oh, my gosh, contact lenses would be great for that. She's just laid the, the table out for me, and I just walk in and, and just, you know, take it from there. It's just so nice. Because you and I, we're busy, right? Yeah. We're thinking about, oh, the staff problem that we have, about insurance issues, about all these things, health issues with the patient. And to have a staff member who's really attuned to how contact lenses could help somebody and I think really helps move the ball forward in that. So you can take that off your plate. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Well, um, with that, Tom, I think we'll, we'll, um, end the conversation here. I, I really appreciate that you, that you came on. And, and, um, I also want to tell you that, you know, I know it's guys like you that have allowed me to practice the way I get a practice. And so I'm truly grateful for that. Uh, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to pick your brain a little bit and we'll have to do this again. Chris, yeah, I, I humbly uh, accept the, the uh, nice uh, comments there, but I am so appreciative of your offering uh, me the opportunity to come out and talk about contact lenses. I mean, I would do this anytime, anywhere, but to be able to share this with you and hopefully an audience, it, it's just a real treat. Thank you so awesome. much. Thank you very much. 